I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Last month, Children's National Health System, the world's largest provider of care for children with rare genetic disorders, announced the formation of Children's National Rare Disease Institute. Billed as a first-of-its-kind center focused exclusively on advancing the care and treatment of children and adults with rare genetic diseases, the National Organization for Rare Disorders has designated it as its first center of excellence of clinical care for rare diseases. We spoke to Marshall Summer, Chief of Genetics and Metabolism at Children's National and Chairman of NORD, about the new institute, the ambitious vision for it, and the role it hopes to play in transforming care for people with rare diseases. Marshall, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking. We're going to talk about Children's National Health System, its newly created Children's National Rare Disease Institute, and what this means for the rare disease community. Perhaps you can begin with the Children's National Health System for listeners who may not be familiar with it. How long has it been around? What's it known for? And and who does it serve? Well, it's, it's actually, Children's has got a deep history. It actually goes back to about 1865, towards the end of the Civil War, as one of the first children's hospitals in America. Um, it's been in Washington, D.C. since that time, and it's been in about, I think, three different locations in the district. Uh, right now, it's a very large, uh, independent, freestanding children's hospital. Uh, it's, we see about four to 500,000 outpatients a year over 30,000 inpatients a year. We have great depth in all the specialties, over, um, I think, 600 physicians now across the network. We provide services to the East Coast region, particularly in the uh, Washington, D.C., Virginia, Maryland area, but we also have a large international reach um, across pretty much every continent, although I have not seen a patient from Antarctica. the reason that's one of the reasons we wanted to launch the institute is children's has got very good coverage across all the specialties you need to do something like this well i I understand you're actually the world's largest provider of care for children with rare genetic disorders already what was yeah what was the thinking in forming the children's national rare disease institute and and how did it come about well this was a natural evolution so when i arrived here about uh, seven years ago from my career at Vanderbilt before that, uh, Children's had a good, strong genetics division, but uh, the whole institution was interested in taking it to the next level. So we built it up so that we have uh, 13 clinical geneticists who are also biochemical geneticists. We have uh, neurogenetics. We have a wide cardiogenetics, a wide variety of these subspecialty groups. Where we end up being the largest is actually in clinical care. So. Last year, in the 2016 year, we saw 8,500 patients um, across our three sites here in the D.C. metro area. Uh, That's significantly as far as I know the largest in North America, for sure, probably even internationally as well, too. Pretty sure we're uh, there. So why do a rare disease institute? It's not about patient volumes and things like that. 
what we've seen is that rare diseases emerging as a unique medical specialty. Um, if you look at most more, I would say, widespread or more common medical specialties, they're based on data from enormous groups of patients, you know, the whole concept, big data, large numbers. Um, that's how they base do their best care models. Rare disease is a little different from that. We tend to have very small groups of patients. Um, I've worked with groups where there are only five patients in the United States who have a particular disease. So we wanted to kind of come up with a medical home model for patients who have complex conditions, which most rare diseases tend to be. Diagnostic challenges. Uh, these diseases are hard to detect, hard to pick up, and patients often can go years bouncing from uh, center to center before they get their diagnosis, but then building care models for them. And we're I'm borrowing a lot from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Um, CF many years ago set out to develop a center of excellence model where they tried to take everything they currently knew about the disease, pull together the best that they could find, and then track it, see what worked, what didn't. That's the model we want to build here, knowing that we have very small groups to work with. So the Rare Disease Institute is, to me, the next evolution in the stage of clinical genetics. So clinical genetics historically has been about rare disease patients, but with the explosion in genetic information, genetic data, that's become a little more diffuse. So for us, it really is about um, trying to take it to the next level. Well, how unique is the Institute? How unique is the Institute? Well, as far as I know, we're the only one right now. There are a lot of centers that are seeing patients with rare disease, but I don't think anyone's quite developed this around a centralized care model yet. Most of them are based around uh, divisions of genetics, which ours starts with, but taking it to a medical home model is, I think, um, unique for us. And uh, a model that we've already received some interest in from other centers and copying. So I think we'll be the first. We will not be the last. Um, one nice thing about our partnership with Nord is we'll be able to develop national standards for what a uh, center of excellence is. And then we'll work with other centers to see, you know, how that rolls out at their institutions and if they have the things they need to do that. You, you mentioned Nord. We, we should note that you, you are the first center of excellence for clinical care for rare diseases that's been designated by Nord. I should also note you're the current chairman of the board for Nord. What's the significance of this designation? And is there an expectation that there'll be many others coming behind you? I think there's an ex expectation of both. I think the significance of this is you need the patients involved in determining what is excellent care. Once again, I say we're, we're kind of borrowing from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, and that's what they did. Nobody's going to watch outcomes closer than parents and families. And by having them as a partner in what is a center of excellence, determining that and actually becoming the, the body that actually grants that, uh, I think then you can keep a very high standard on that. So Nord comes into this because they are the largest um, patient advocacy organization. They represent over 250, I think it's actually close to 300 now, uh, individual rare disease patient advocacy groups. Um, they have deep informatics. Their websites get over a million hits a month for rare disease. They are, I think, the leader on the Hill for policy, a lot of different things like that. So it was kind of a natural 
place to start with getting their blessing, first of all, getting their blessing to do this, but then actually really putting some teeth in this so that we're held accountable to someone else for the care, quality of the care we're providing. I think it would be easy just to come up with a label, but we really want to go way past that. This isn't a label. This is an actual way of caring for patients. Now, the next question you ask is, will there be a lot following after? I'd say the answer is yes. And I think they'll be at different levels. There'll be some that'll be full service. They can see everything. And there'll some that will have a particular specialty in uh, some diseases, but may not necessarily do the full reach uh, of all the different things. Well, what is the state of care for children with rare diseases today? How well equipped are doctors and the medical system in general to, to treat these patients? And do you see this as filling some type of gap? This actually fills a couple of gaps. That's a great question. So what we find in general is general practitioners typically, and there are great exceptions to this, but typically are scared of these patients. They're complex. The literature to know what to do is not readily available. And so they like to have a home where these patients can go, where someone knows you know, what to do for that particular patient. Now, I mean, for a general practitioner, you knowing the intricacies of the urea cycle is not something they should be expected to do, but having a place where that is known that they can work with and a lot of the care issues around that patient's whole medical life can be taken care of, I think is a boon for both fields there. So there's definitely been a perceived need. One of the biggest gaps we've got is actually a result of the successes we've had across the field of genetics and, you know, for caring for patients with rare disease, which is survival has improved. So suddenly we have a large cohort of children who are coming into adulthood. Um, you look at the average life expectancy in conditions like Down syndrome and others have risen dramatically even in the last 20 to 30 years. With the advent of expanded newborn screening, we have whole groups of patients with metabolic diseases that before we didn't see as adults. So not only do we have to take care of the kids with these rare conditions, we have to extend them to the adult field. And one of the things we've built into our Rare Disease Institute in our um, clinical division is we actually have a number of doctors who are trained in adult medicine as well as clinical and biochemical genetics. So I think to really do this properly, you have to treat this as a lifespan issue. It's not just a pediatric issue. In, in announcing the Institute, there's reference to it serving as a medical home for patients with diseases that remain largely unknown to the general medical community. Is there any particular role you expect to play for undiagnosed patients? Actually, we do. We've got a very robust undiagnosed disease program. Um, one of the key focuses of the Institute is going to be on diagnostics. And that means we'll identify patients who have something we already know about, but we're also going to have a large group of them that will have diseases that are as yet unidentified. And we have uh, the ability to do novel um, next-generation sequencing for them, but we also have a diagnostic team that is very good at uh, putting together kind of new conditions and identifying things that people haven't seen before. So, absolutely, I can't tell you what percentage it'll be because they're as yet undiagnosed. But a lot, large number of the patients we've already seen have new conditions or novel variations on already recognized conditions. So that's going to be a big component. We've seen rapid advances to the ability to do genomic testing. Payers, for the most part, see this as something that's expensive and of unproven clinical utility. How do you see this changing and, and how important do you see this in terms of 
getting an accurate diagnosis? Well, I think it's important at two levels, and we do two types of testing. So in one type, we use what I would call your historical standardized next-generation sequence testing, where we're looking for a condition we suspect, we think a patient may have, and payers still push back on that very hard. It's, um, I think every time I've seen a new wave of testing or therapeutics introduced into medicine, we always have this adjustment period where everyone has to get their head around, is this a value, is it not? And I think the literature supports the value of having these diagnoses, both in cost and quality of care. For patients where we really don't have a real good idea what's going on, we think it's something new. We actually have started a collaboration, which uh, we announced last fall with Regeneron. Um, they're very interested in identifying new diseases as well. They're partnering with us to provide next-generation sequencing for patients. Uh, that we feel have undiagnosed conditions and have actually provided several thousand uh, sequences for these patients per year as we move forward. So we have the capacity to do a lot of new disease discovery with uh, this system. Data gathering is a, an important component to what the Institute will do to track patient outcomes and treatment regimens to create a clinical knowledge database. Can you talk a little about how that'll work and how the information will be used? Sure. There's Well, the one thing, too, is um, we need to make sure this information gets shared across uh, the patient advocacy groups and to the other centers. I think one thing I want to make very clear is this is not going to be a place where we want to hold all the data. We want to hold all of the protocols. We want to make sure that that information is shared. So one of the projects that we're deeply involved with is the NORD registry program. NORD has been working to develop a standardized registry system, which we've now deployed over a fair number of rare diseases already. It's standardized informatics, the storage, it's HIPAA compliant, it has good um, sort of rules of engagement for the families. The thing that's novel about this is the majority of the data is entered by the patients. Now, their physicians can enter data in there, but one of the things I've found over the years and others have observed is that trying to do highly intense data entry registries based on physician entry, when you start talking about 7,000 different rare diseases, that just suddenly becomes impractical. But families that we actually get a lot of the information from anyway are highly motivated to participate. And the uh, registries we've already rolled out through this NORD program have been highly successful. The FDA is actually involved with us in that project uh, to the point of actually helping us fund it and consider this data very useful for clinical studies, preclinical data, things like that. So we're trying to leverage our data collection into multiple purposes, things that we can use to learn about clinical outcome, things we can learn about natural history. You know, the biggest category of knowledge in rare diseases, we don't know what we don't know. And so one of my goals is to try to build those systems so we can do that. So informatics is going to be a huge component of this. And how you know that data gets shared, that's where we work with the patient advocacy groups because they will actually own their own data. And one of the things you want to work towards is best practices, establishing best practices. Do you expect to do this on a disease-by-disease disease basis, or is this more broadly, and, and how will you share that knowledge? Actually, it will kind of be at three levels. The first will be is what is best practice across the, you know, the whole idea of small group diseases. You know, what type of statistics do you use to determine what kind of are some basic support structures you need, genetic counseling, 
that sort of thing. The next would be what I'd say categories of disease. So let's let's take connective tissue diseases, for instance. You know, for that, besides having your you know genetics, your counseling, you're going to need your radiologist, you're going to need your orthopedics team, you're going to need a number of folks who are familiar with that. So next, you'll have kind of your best practices across uh, clusters or categories of disease. And then finally, you're going to have your specific disease um, best practices. And what we plan to do is generate treatment care guidelines, and we'll pull a lot from what's already out there. There's a lot of good treatment guidelines for diseases already in existence, and we certainly don't want to duplicate uh, the invention of the wheel on these things. So we'll pull a lot of that information together. We'll particularly focus on adding practical aspects to treatment. A lot of guidelines are a little um, 30,000 feet. We want to make sure that we can get down to one inch off the ground with some of these on how we're treating those. We'll share those back out. People can comment on them. Caregivers can comment on them. We'll try to pull in, you know, suggestions from families so that these are continually evolving uh, documents. So, like I said, at kind of three levels, kind of a very high level, an intermediate level, and then around the specific diseases using almost every resource we can get our hands on. Now, what role do you expect to play in clinical trials for new therapies and, and what capacity do you have to conduct those trials? Well, Children's is unique in that it's one of the only, in fact, I think it is the only independent children's hospital that has a CTSA, so Clinical Translational Science Award. So we actually have a very vital clinical research center. Um, I know in our current group, we have 26 uh, clinical trials going on around rare diseases and that, so we have a lot of capacity. And then there's, you know, the old adage, if you build it, they will come, as we continue to attract and draw patients around the central core, it becomes easier to do clinical trials. We definitely want a mix of both uh, investigator-sponsored trials as well as industry-sponsored trials. We think it will be attractive for both. And Children's has made some efforts to make the burden of getting those going as low as we can. And what role do you expect to play in terms of teaching and training healthcare professionals to address rare disease patients? Uh, that's another question I love to hear because we have a big workforce shortage in genetics and metabolism in the United States. Uh, this is something that I think everyone's aware of. Trying to make the field attractive is one place we need to work on. We need to make sure people are properly compensated and in a competitive um, way so that people are drawn in. I think we have the most interesting patients. I don't think interest in the field is a problem, but I think the, uh, the way we handle our docs. So right now in the area we act as the clinical training site for uh, the National Institute of Health genetic fellows. Uh, actually, the fellows from Hopkins come down and we go back and forth there with their trainees. And we just launched our own internal training program as well for postdoctoral fellows in uh, clinical genetics as well. So in the this area, we'll have seven uh, clinical trainees during the next year. Of note, there's only 25 nationally, so almost a third the trainees are going to be exposed to this program and coming through this system, um, but we need more. How do you see care towards rare disease patients evolving, and what role do you hope to play in that as we move forward? Well, I think the role I hope to play is that some is standardizing how we do things, you know, trying to pull together best practices, and I think one disease can often teach the other. I think by creating the Rare Disease Institute, the role I hope we will play is acting as a clearinghouse 
for a lot of this information, but also a home. Um, one of the things that struck me, I've been doing this since the 1980s, is that families will come to you and when you show that you actually know something about what their family member has, you can almost just see them sit down and have a sigh of relief. And that's, I want to be able to do that for our families. I want them to feel they've got a place where somebody knows what's going on. Somebody knows at least the best that we do know what to do, what's next, and sort of can watch out for them. Um, so many times I see families who have a rare disease go into a clinical setting and they know so much more than the care provider they're encountered with. And that's not unexpected. I mean, these are rare conditions and there's only a few patients and a uh, general practitioner only has so much bandwidth. But what I want to make sure we're doing is not only providing that family with a place to come to where we do know what's going on, but also we can work with the other care providers they need to interface with. So that person knows what's going on as well, too. So they have confidence that they're getting the best, you know, that's available or the best that's known and that it's always working to improve it. Marshall Summer, Chief of Genetics and Metabolism at Children's National and Chairman of the Board for the National Organization for Rare Disorders. Marshall, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.